0: So if you open your Bibles to Nehemiah, chapter six, we'll actually do um, we're going to do all of chapter six and all of chapter seven. Yes, it can be done. I will prove it to you tonight. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read through Nehemiah chapter six verses one through nine, but we will tackle all of chapter six, and, as I said, all of chapter seven. And so out of reverence for God's word as it is read, I invite you to join me by standing and hear the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at... Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. They intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sanbalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. This is going to be a letter that will be read in the marketplace for everyone in town to hear. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, we you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, many are using the strategy of fear to distract your people and confuse them. Grant us to follow our greater Nehemiah with faith. Amen. You may be seated. One of the interesting things in this chapter, as you get into it, is that the word frighten or afraid or fear is used something like five times in this chapter. It becomes the major theme of chapter six, and so you'll see why that's important. You know, it's always risky business to quote a politician or to look at one as an example. Okay, I know that. But in some ways, Dan Crenshaw is sort of a solid illustration on what Nehemiah does in chapters 6 and 7. You may remember Dan Crenshaw, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, retired medically retired Navy SEAL who's now a congressman down in Houston. He's the guy with the patch over one of the eyes. From his own personal combat experience as a Navy SEAL where he was substantially wounded in combat, Crenshaw says repeatedly in his book, Fortitude. He says this like three or four times throughout this whole book. Quote, panic causes more panic, but calm breeds calm. Panic causes more panic, calm breeds calm. And you will see Nehemiah exhibit Crenshaw's point here. So tonight, we look at how some people, specifically those outside the church, those causing trouble from the outside, how they employed the strategy of fear, but Nehemiah responded with the strategy of faith and the strategy of flow. So there's your three points, the strategy of fear, the strategy of faith, and the strategy of flow. So the strategy of fear, and all this is on the back of your worship guide, the, the outline is. So the strategy of fear really covers all of chapter 6. As I mentioned, fear is used some five times in that chapter. So you'll notice as we begin chapter 6, our old acquaintances of obstruction, Sanbalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, along with their posse, verse 1, they're all back at center stage. We left them behind in chapter 4, and then last time we met, uh, Pastor West talked about the troubles inside the church in chapter 5, But now we're back to the troubles from outside the church that are really uh, causing quite a bit of difficulty. This time, notice, though, that the obstructionists, rather than using just threats and barricades, setting up barricades and so forth, they pursue a different strategy. They pursue the strategy of fear. The whole chapter, in a sense, shivers with fright and frightfulness. To begin, notice that they simply call Nehemiah to come out to the town or the ruins or the district, nobody knows for certain, of Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. Wherever that was, the point is, it's a place that was away from the safety and security that Nehemiah had where he was. And so they hound Nehemiah. Notice that they they sent this to him four times. They hound him. They pressure him, they intimidate him four times, verse 4. When it's clear that Nehemiah will not budge, they turn to the shame game. What they do is they crowdsource. I'm going to use a lot of contemporary terms at this point. They use crowdsourcing of pressure. They're crowdsourcing the pressure with an open letter. When they send the open letter, the intention is that, think about... um, All the other statements or messages to Nehemiah were just by private messenger, but now it's an open letter. That means they now go out into the marketplace. They're going to read it out loud for everybody to hear so that everybody is frightened and they put pressure on Nehemiah for, for Tobiah and Sambalat. That's the point. They're crowdsourcing the pressure with an open letter, calling Nehemiah out by way of their version of social media. An open letter was their version of social media. Think about Martin Luther when he goes to nail the 95 thesis on the Wittenberg church door. That was social media of the day. That was posting on Twitter, right? They put it out there so everybody could see. That's what's happening here. This is social media, if you will. And they're putting it out for everyone to see. And they're trying to shame Nehemiah publicly. So verse 5. In the same way, Sanbalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And you will notice that this letter, the statement in the letter, in that letter, they cite fake news. It's been reported. I love the fact they say, you know, even Geshem says it. Well, who cares what Geshem says? He's an Arab. He doesn't want, you know, it's really kind of funny how they quote him as the source, right? It's fake news. It's reports from twisted YouTube channels. It's... um quoting podcasts, things like that. Here's how it goes in verse 6 and 7. And it was written, "...it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall." And according to these reports, you wish to become king, their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem there is a king in Judah. And now the king, Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports." He's trying to strike fear in Nehemiah. And so now come and let us take counsel together. So you'll notice the strategy of fear, the very first part of the strategy of fear is pressure and propaganda. Now propaganda can be a good thing. Propaganda just means putting out a word, right? So putting forth uh, information, but it can be misused. So we often use the word propaganda in a negative way, and that's exactly what's going on here. The first part of the strategy of fear is pressure and propaganda. The second part of their strategy of fear is to get some of the local talking heads, people in the church, prophets, people who are part of the covenant community, to get the local talking heads to spread fear and to counsel actions by Nehemiah based on fear. In fact, it's Shemiah, the son of Deliah. We don't know who he is, but it appears Shemiah was somebody with some credibility and Nehemiah had some confidence in him because Nehemiah was at his house. He had gone to his home. He was a shut-in. He went to his home. There's some sense of trust there. And so Shemiah uses his inroad with Nehemiah. Here it is, verse 10. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. Now stop there. In that statement, you already know something's not right. Because who are the only ones allowed on the inside of the temple? The priests. So notice what he's already doing. He's wanting Nehemiah to break God's law, to compromise the biblical principles. All right. so here it is, and I want you to notice then, when we come to the end of his statement, how he is basing this on fear. Here we go, let me read it again. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Yeah. Run for your life, he says. Compromise God's law, he counsels. Make this decision right now with immediacy, with urgency, in fear. They're coming to kill you and kill you by night. Run. That's his counsel. He's trying to get Nehemiah to do these actions based not on sober-mindedness and thoughtfulness and principle, but based on reactive fear. But Nehemiah has his head on straight being sober-minded. And so, verse 12 and 13, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. The way he knew that God had not sent this prophet is because the prophet was counseling him to break God's law. That was the moment. Boom, he knew something was not right with this prophet. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him for this purpose he was hired. That I should be afraid. Do you hear the fear? Strategy of fear. That I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Here's someone in the church, someone who's supposed to be respectable, someone who's supposed to have credibility, who's been become uh, the mouthpiece of Tobiah to stoke the embers of fear to get Nehemiah to act with urgency, without faith, without thoughtfulness, to act on fear. Interesting. He's using the strategy of fear, so the strategy of fear encompasses pressure and propaganda, but it also encompasses now panic, faith-breaking panic. But it also includes politicking. It's down in verses 17 through 19. Notice that many of the nobles of Judah were keeping Tobiah fed. Notice this, these are people in the church. Nobles of Judah are keeping Tobiah fed with intel reports And then they turn around and are getting their talking points. I told you I'm going to use a lot of contemporary terms here. They're getting their talking points from Tobiah and then passing passing them on to Nehemiah as well as frightening letters from Tobiah to Nehemiah. So look at verse 19. Tobiah sent letters to make me what? "Tobiah, uh, Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Do you hear the strategy of fear? It's all over this chapter. This is the approach they're taking. Now you may ask, why would these nobles of Judah be doing these things? There's at least two reasons. One is not specifically stated, but the context gives you the impression. If you will remember, if you can remember this far back, I know it was two weeks ago, and we've all slept at least twice since then. When Pastor West was talking about Nehemiah 5, who did Nehemiah have to confront what group of people in Judah were oppressing the less fortunate members of the church in Judah? The nobles. And Nehemiah had to confront them, so it's very possible they're trying to get their pound of flesh because he actually embarrassed them. It doesn't say that, but the closeness of chapter 6 to chapter 5 gives that impression that that's the implication. But there's a second reason, and this one is stated. All of this came about because of the tangled... Messy marriage between Tobiah, a non believer, and Shechaniah's daughter. He's supposed to be one of the members of the church, a believer, and it's his daughter. So Tobiah is married to Shechaniah's daughter, but then also Tobiah's son married Meshulam's daughter. It was a mixed faith set of marriages, which is a mixed set of loyalties. Mixed faith marriages, mixed loyalties marriages. You've got to keep that in your mind when we get to chapter 13. I'm going to say this now, and I'll say it again then. The Bible nowhere forbids people marrying across racial and ethnic lines, ever. It never forbids those things. What it forbids is mixed faith marriages. Believers are only to marry believers. Okay, And so as long as we have control of that, there are some regions where... Men and women don't have any control of that because the families rule everything. But as long as we have control of that, that's what we're supposed to do. Believers marry believers. And they're compromising this. And you can see how the mixed faith marriages create mixed loyalties. And that's always a problem. Mixed faith marriages almost always lead to mixed loyalties. And so Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem and the gang took up the strategy of fear for the purpose of snuffing out the welfare of God's people by attempting to get them to stop rebuilding after their hot mess. My friends, how often does the strategy of fear pester us today and trouble God's people in most days, throughout most centuries, throughout the last two millennium, for example? News sources, political rhetoric, prophets, podcasters, all demanding Act now. Violate God's law. They never say those words, but that's what they ask for. That's what they implore us to do. Break God's law to act now because you've got to act because it's all coming to an end. And if you don't act, it's your own fault. Blah, blah, blah. Right? So they emphasize that. They demand that we throw out, for example, God's commands, Christ's commands of brotherly love. That we devour and destroy fellow Christians all in the name of Jesus pushing us into panic, pushing us to vote, pushing us to run, pushing us to fight out of feverish, the feverish pitch of fear. And honestly, it's easy. It's just all too easy to succumb to these strategies. I know I have done it more than once. It's just too easy. But the response the best defense to the strategy of fear is the strategy of faith. The strategy of faith. So we're going to go back through chapter 6. You can see, if you've got your sermon notes there, you can see the verses we'll look at into chapter 7, but it's the strategy of faith. And so Nehemiah's response, going back to the beginning of chapter 6, Nehemiah's response to the strategy of fear is faith. It's not faith in Nehemiah, it's not faith in the law, it's not faith in the civil law, it's not faith in superior firepower, it's not faith in concealed weapons, it's not faith in in political action committees, it's not faith in any of those things, it's faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nehemiah's first response to Sambalat and Geshem when they put pressure on him is to stay focused on his God-given duties. Here's what happens when you get down to verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He stays focused on his God-given duty and does not allow himself to be deflected. My friends, ministers and pastors would do well to remember our main task. In Acts chapter 6, the opportunity was there for the apostles to get derailed because there was a real legitimate need in that situation. The Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being forsaken, they said, by the, the care of the church, of the larger church. But the apostles stay on task. And so they say, look, we must remember our task is prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's our focus, and so set up these seven men to do this important work. But that's the point, is that we have to remember our main task. And we have to remember our primary aim. Our primary aim and all of the conflicts over dogma and doctrine and other things is always in one direction. In 1 Timothy 1, when Paul reminds Timothy why he sent him to Ephesus to deal with troublemakers in the church, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Ministers and pastors would do well to remember our main task, prayer and the ministry of the Word, and our primary aim, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our God-given duty is part of the strategy of faith, sticking with it. Nehemiah's second piece to his strategy of faith Is prayer after the obstructionist gang openly, uh, as after the obstructionist gang openly shames him with the open letter, slandering him on social media. Nehemiah's approach is to simply slough off their charge and to pray. Notice what he does down in verse eight, and then at the end of verse nine. Then I sent to him saying, "No such thing as you say. No such things as you say have been done." For you are inventing them out of your own mind. What a great statement. And then the end of verse 9. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Just as he will pray after the talking heads try to get hold of him, in verse 14, he will say, and he's actually going to mention a different prophet than Shemaiah. He's going to mention a woman named Noadiah. Here's what he says. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Notice Nehemiah's approach. It's the strategy of faith. Instead of getting sucked into their fearful and fear-producing, gaslighting and bamboozling tactics, Nehemiah straightforwardly denies their charges, and then leaves it for God to validate him. That's the whole point of his prayer. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. He's going to leave the case in God's hands and not try to validate and vindicate himself. My friends, it's not easy to do. Speaking again from some experiences throughout the years. When we're falsely accused, We want to vindicate ourselves and be vindicated right now. And very often we will stop everything we're supposed to be doing to go clear up the false accusations and to make sure we get justified or we justify ourselves. We'll play with some words there. We can't do that. We have to stay focused and we have to give over our vindication to the Lord. And we just, and we pray. That's part of the strategy of faith. It's not easy to do. But I want you to notice that our Lord Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, shows us the better way. And we talked about it this morning. You heard it this morning in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not what? Revile and return. When he... Suffered, he did not retaliate, but instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That was his whole thing. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And then Peter says in the passage we were looking at in chapter 4 that we're to do the same and trust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Nehemiah's strategy of faith is to turn the other cheek and not retaliate. Think about our New Testament reading, our Lord Jesus in John 10, and what does He tell us? He says, I know my sheep, I call them all by name, and I will lay down my life for them. No one is taking it from me. I do it of my own accord. I have this authority to do this. He does not retaliate out of fear and out of reaction. He gives. Then when when Shemaiah, the the, the prophet, the paid off talking head, when Shemaiah strives to get Nehemiah to compromise his principles and act out in panic, Nehemiah sticks tenaciously to his guns and he refuses, he refuses to launch a mass panic. He leads instead from the front. This is what he said, chapter 6, verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? I'm the leader. I'm the governor of the realm. Should a man such as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go. It's very much what Dan Crenshaw was talking about. Panic causes more panic, but calm breeds calm. Nehemiah recognizes that. If I run, that's the end of the job. Everybody else will run. I remember when we were in Mississippi, and I would go running down country roads. I'd be running, you know, three or four miles a day. And I'd be running and going down this country road. Nobody's out there, and there's all these trees right here. But I knew what was on the other side of the trees was a pasture. And I would come around the trees, and all the only thing you could hear is my feet flopping on the ground. You know how runners flop, you know? And I'm coming around the trees, and inevitably, almost every time I came around the trees, there was a cow there. And the cow was always sticking her head through the fence because, don't you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And so she'd have her head through the fence and as soon as I came around the trees, she would see me, she'd pull her head out and she would turn and run and here was the whole herd all around her and they wouldn't even pay attention to me. They saw her run and they all went, ah! They all ran with her. Until they got to the top of the pasture and then they'd be out of breath because cows are big and they ran out of oxygen pretty quick. And they would stop and turn around and look and go, mmm. right? But that's the herd mentality. They didn't even pay attention. They ran because this one ran. And Nehemiah knows, if I run, they all run. I'm going to lead from the front. I am not going to breed panic. I'm going to breed calm. And that's the approach that he takes. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And so our Lord Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, followed suit. From his temptation to his crucifixion. When he was being tempted in the wilderness, how does the old serpent come up to him and what does he tempt him with? Jesus, I know you're hungry. Look, there's some rocks right here. Go ahead and turn them into bread and satisfy your needs. No, man does not live by, the, uh, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Look, I tell you what, well, let's go to the top of the temple here. You throw yourself off the top of the temple and everybody will be wowed and they will pay big bucks to come and follow you. No, 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 we don't tempt the Lord our God. Okay, look, I'm going to make it easy for you. Crucifixion is really painful. Going that way is miserable. You bow down to me, and I'll give you everything you're after. painlessly. What does Jesus say? No, you worship the Lord your God in Him only. He was calm and did not panic. And that was the ploy, part of the ploy the serpent was giving him, and he refused to take it, and he remained the leader that he was supposed to always be, the greater Nehemiah, all the way to his crucifixion. Go back through his trial. Go back through all the false accusations. What would you do in those false accusations? I know what I would do. I wouldn't be a very good Christian. I know about the rest of you people my natural inclination would be to fight back and to use the same media sources and do the very same things to them. But notice what our Lord does. He will not let that happen. And so he leads from the front, not with panic, but in calm. And so the writer of Hebrews sets him up and says, this is who we should always look to in the most grievous moments. Therefore, being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us uh, uh, casting aside everything that sets its way in our, in our path, always looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Always looking to him and following him. And he doesn't panic. Further, notice that Nehemiah's strategy of faith is seen in the end result. It's down on verse 15. The wall is surprisingly rebuilt in 52 days. Now, this is in the sixth month. Remember, I gave you in the very first uh, session that we did, I gave you a calendar. And everything is uh, from chapter 1 through chapter 12 happens in one calendar year. So this is the sixth month of that calendar year. 52 days, so not long after he got there, 52 days, basically almost 52 days after he got there, the wall was built. Amazing. I mean, we're talking not about a wall around your house. We're talking about a wall around a city. That's a huge amount of stones, right? But here's the the greater part of this is that the wall was rebuilt by an army of untrained workers. They're not masons. There was a priest in there or several priests in there. There were, there were, there was a baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker. They weren't trained masons. And the wall gets built and it's built in a short time in 52 days with all of the pressure and with all of the problems from outside the church. It still happened. The whole situation was so shocking to everyone outside, to all those who were without faith. Look down at verse 16 for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah's strategy of faith involving prayer and all of this, the Lord blessed it. The wall was built in 52 days by untrained laborers and workers. It was amazing, nearly miraculous. So God used the strategy of faith to turn the strategy of fear on its head and to shove it back into the face of the fearmongers. Look down there at, um, at verse, uh, verse 16 again. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. The ones using the strategy of fear now are trembling in their own sandals. They were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Lastly, Nehemiah's strategy of faith brings him to put trustworthy men in charge of the city. He puts his brother in charge of the city and another man named Hananiah. Because in chapter 7, verse 2, he was a a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Above all the others in the area, his brother and especially Hananiah were a cut above. We hear that, and sometimes we might think, well, that's kind of an unfair assessment. I mean, that's not very kind. And that kindness sounds almost a little self righteous. But it's the same kind of assessment that Paul gives of Timothy. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, if you want to write that down, you can look it up. Philippians 2, 20 through 22, listen to Paul's assessment of Timothy as he's writing to the Philippians. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Interesting. You have to have that quality to be as part of the leadership and setting that up. And so, my friends, having men of upstanding quality as elders, as deacons, as pastors in a church is hugely important. And it is not something to be left to pragmatics and preferences. I remember in a church somewhere, I won't tell you any more details than this, I remember the discussion about why should we, uh, why should we ordain so-and-so to be a deacon? It didn't happen here, so don't worry. And the, the, the main elder of the session said, well, because then he'll start coming to church more often. What? Right? That's leading it to pragmatics and preferences. We are not to leave it to pragmatics and preferences. And so Nehemiah's strategy of faith, a strategy that actually echoes our Lord Jesus, is not to lose our aim to pray, even using imprecatory prayers. That's what one of those prayers is when he prays about Tobiah and Sanballat and Noadiah the prophetess. It's an imprecatory prayer. See what they've done, Lord, and you take care of it. That's an imprecatory prayer. So, to to not lose our aim, to pray, even using imprecatory prayers, to entrust ourselves to the One who judges justly, to turn the other cheek and not retaliate in kind, and to not act or vote or respond out of panic, but to stick soberly to God's ways. It may be, please God, it may be that our Lord will turn... The obstructionist strategy of fear on its head and throw it back into their faces while aiding us to rebuild after a hot mess for the better welfare of God's people. But lastly comes the strategy of flow. And yes, we are going to knock out all of chapter 7 in just a few short minutes. You're, I know you're amazed, okay? I can see the amazement in your face. But it's chapter 7, verses 5 through 73, the strategy of flow. It's this list of names. Nehemiah, notice what's happening here in chapter 7. We'll start back up at verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, And so he says that, and then the next thing he does is quotes all these people from a list that's found over in Ezra 2. So if you've got your Bible, right there verse 5, write Ezra 2. That list is the people who originally came back to Jerusalem over a hundred years before. They came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the city of Jerusalem. They were successful in rebuilding the temple. And so all of a sudden... As he's getting ready to do a genealogy of those who are in and around Jerusalem now, he goes back to Ezra 2 to this list from 100 years before. There's reasons for it. Let me give you different aspects here. This list, I realize this list that's there might bring you to a numbed incoherence as you read it. I realize that, but it's a very important list. Nehemiah, as I said, has found the old genealogical record from Ezra 2 and he rehearses it here. It's over 100 years old, but it has something to do with then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. When he finally enrolls the locals, it will be over uh, in a few chapters later, but also part of what he's about to do is he is about to tithe the people. One-tenth will come to move into Jerusalem. So he's actually laying some foundation work here. It's somehow related to that. It has something to do, therefore, with verse 4 and verse 73. The city was wide open, it was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. Verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel, lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So this list has something to do with what uh, Nehemiah is getting ready to do with those who are living in their towns. He's going to tithe them. 10% of them will come to live in Jerusalem. But here's where this, I think, really comes out the most. First off, dear friends, the record as he rehearses this record of what happened 100 years before. These people that came to Jerusalem 100 years before to rebuild the temple and they succeeded at it. What Nehemiah is doing is he is presenting that the present people who had just completed rebuilding the wall are in league with the people that came back in faith 100 years before. It's a faith league. That these people are in league with those people. They're of the same fabric. They're on the same team. He's rehearsing what happened 100 years before, who, they, who came 100 years before, emphasizing that these people that just completed the wall are in cahoots, are in league with those people. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the strategy of flow. The flow has not stopped. These people came back in faith and rebuilt the temple. These people rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in faith. It's the flow of faithful continuity. But also it is stressing that these people in Nehemiah's day that had just rebuilt the wall are related to those people and those people are also, all of them together, are all part of the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 22, and so forth. That God, in other words, the point is, it's a strategy of faithful continuity. That God didn't stop fulfilling His promise. Does that make sense? God didn't stop. An exile could not stop the Lord. A hundred years could not stop the Lord. His own faithful continuity. And so how do you know? Well, look, He brought these people back 100 years ago. They rebuilt the temple. And then look, He almost miraculously helped us to rebuild the wall in 52 days. Look at how faithful God is. His faithfulness is new every morning and it never stops. Woo! That's the point of this genealogy. That's the point of it. The strategic flow is significant at both of these levels and more. In a way, it sort of mirrors Heritage's 40th anniversary, which was also our 100th anniversary. Right, so some of you don't know this, but in 2017, we had our 40th anniversary. You remember that? Our 40th anniversary as Heritage. Come to find out, it was actually our 100th anniversary as a church. On 25th and Chartel was the building we had built, or our forebears had built, and there was a capstone dedicated 1917, 100 years. And so during that time, as we were getting ready for the anniversary, I was rummaging through the session records and the finance records from the 20s and the 60s and the 80s. There were all these people that none of us knew. And what was amazing was that in that 100-year period, it kept coming back to me. Wow, Lord, look at your unstoppable faithfulness. Your unstoppable death didn't even stop it. I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down because this is really exciting. At least it is to me. Nothing stopped it. You've been faithful through all these years and we don't even know who those people were, but they were important for us. Wow, praise the Lord. And then I got to thinking also about things a little closer. People a little closer. Steve Childers, for example. The Peabody's. The Hawks. The Santelmans, the Santelmans, there they are. The santlemans, the Casins, the Stidels, and so many others. People who, some who are already gone, and thinking, "Wow, they were part of that faithful continuity of God's strategy of flow. He's faithful, and nothing can stop His faithfulness. That strategy of flow can lift our spirits. It lifted theirs and it can lift ours. So there's the strategy of flow. That was the three points, the strategy of fear, the strategy of faith, and the strategy of flow. As I end, let us reflect briefly. Three things here. First off, my friends, the opponents the opponents of the welfare of God's people will use the strategy of fear. They will use the strategy of fear from the outside, and sometimes they will use it inside the church. The strategy of fear. Just know it, that the opponents will use the strategy of fear. And so we need to be wise to those tactics and not give in. But further, the best and singular way to resist the strategy of fear is the strategy of faith. Trusting our Lord and Savior, and trusting ourselves to Him that judges justly, turning the other cheek and not retaliating in kind, not running and, and blowing and, and going and voting and acting out of panic, but with sober-minded confidence in the goodness of God, with prayer, even imprecatory prayers when they're necessary, even asking our Lord that He would take the strategy of fear and turn it on its head and shove it back into their faces. The faces of those who do not want us to rebuild after a hot mess. So the strategy of fear is best resisted by the strategy of faith. And finally, we can and we should Give thanks for God's multi-generational fidelity, His flow of faithful continuity. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much again for the book of Nehemiah. It is so contemporary. The, the technology is different, the The approaches are a little bit different, but overall, it's the same thing because humans don't change. We're still sinners and we still sin in the same kinds of ways. And so thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for how it does help us to be wiser. We pray that you would be with us and help us never to succumb to the strategy of fear. Help us give us strength, fortify us. But instead, help us to rise up in the strategy of faith, following our greater Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus Christ who leads us even through the valley of the shadow of death, who leads us, his rod and his staff are with us and they comfort us, who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies and causes our cup to overflow, and that his goodness and mercy pursues us and hounds us all the days of our life. Help us to follow him through this strategy of faith. And Lord, may we be sensitive to the strategy of flow, always giving you thanks for your undying multi-generational faithfulness in jesus name amen